Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you how much you love us and care for us. We ask that you show us what you would have us to see from these verses tonight. And then we thank you for each person that's here to hear and to listen to what you would have to say. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 23, starting at verse 12. You shall have a place also without the camp, whither you shall go forth abroad. And you shall have a paddle on your weapon, and it shall be when you ease yourself abroad that you shall dig therewith, and shall turn back and cover that which, you, which cometh out of you. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give you your enemies before you. Therefore shall the, your camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in you and turn away from you. So we're going to stop right there. That's the end of the paragraph, so we'll look at that. So we're going to look at this. It says... We've been talking about the holiness of going forth and that God was going to go out before the people. He says, don't let any unclean be around by night because the Lord goes around your camp. Uh, and we've just been looking at these rules that God is putting into place to be holy before God. And we're continuing this thread of being holy before God. And it's what God expects. And we've talked about it. Our righteousness does not make God like us anymore. He's not going to love us anymore just because we're righteous. But there is great reward in righteous living. And we've got to keep that in mind. Our sanctification, learning to live correctly and, and honestly before God, has great reward. But it's not a reward that is eternal. And it says God says, oh, I love, the, I love how much this child of mine is being obedient. It's not how he's going to react to us but there is blessing in this obedience and he says that you will have a place outside your camp whither you shall go when you're unclean and then it says specifically here in verse 13 and you shall have a paddle on your weapon and it shall be that when you ease yourself abroad you shall dig therewith and shall turn back and cover that which comes out of you so in other words when you end up having to use the facilities it was to be buried and that's a good thing to be done you know, if you're out there in the wilderness, it's, you know, he says, cover it, get, put it out. It's not because it is something that has problems. I mean, what, feces is, carries disease, and a quick way to get sick is for people to use the bathroom, not wash their hands, and pass that, those germs from their feces all over the place, and people end up getting pretty bad sicknesses from that in, environment. At the prison where I work, people are always sick because so many of them don't wash their hands. So the employees are really said, you need to wash your hands. You know, always constantly be washing your hands and, and keep yourself healthy. And because it's a, a very unhygienic place overall. Even though they keep it clean and all of that, there's just so much that goes on that is not uh, very wise. But he says... You shall have a paddle on your weapon, which is kind of an interesting thought, a little shovel on the end of your sword of some sort to, to dig a hole and, and, uh, and then you, you know, use, your, use your facilities and then you were to bury it. And that, again, is for hygiene purposes and it's for the purity purposes. And it says that, you, that it's so that when the Lord walks amongst you, among you, he doesn't see the uncleanness. Now, this is kind of a very strange thing because God is everywhere and, and sees everything, so he sees it already. But I think it's more the fact that he says you're to keep those things covered. You're to cover what is coming out. 
When our sins are repented for, when they're put under the blood, they are covered by the blood. God wants that covering of what it is. He doesn't expect us to go around talking about our sins and bragging about them because that's usually what it ends up being, people bragging about their sin. Uh, I drank this much last night and, you know, and I didn't get into an accident or whatever. Or I, I've slept with this many people in my lifetime. You know, and you listen to the world and they brag about this stuff all the time. And in, in, it comes out in that form exactly, bragging. You know, I've, I've got my little scorecard and I've done this many sins. Get to the point where all of a sudden you wish you hadn't done them at all and you stop talking about them. But at that point, it's way too late. And God's saying it needs to be covered. It needs to be put out of God's sight theoretically and, and hidden. How do we hide our sins? We repent, we confess our sins, and Jesus puts them under the blood, and he says, you're forgiven. And once he forgives, he doesn't remember, as we are supposed to do, forgive and not remember. But when he forgives, he totally forgives. He he puts it as far as the east is from the west, which is an infinite amount of distance because those two never meet. He hides them in the deepest sea. He puts them under the blood, and he does not remember them. Now, how does a God that knows everything not remember something? Because he says he won't, plain and simple. He says he won't. There is some place in the universe that he's decided, I'm going to put these thoughts, these remembrance, and I won't remember them. He chooses not to. By, by divine decree, he chooses not to, to remember them. Sure, he could remember. He knows everything. Yeah. And this is why when people go, well, I can't forgive and forget. Why not? If you want to learn to forgive and forget, you choose to not remember. Yeah, it would be giving grace to people, showing people the same grace that God shows to us. Uh, because it's so important. How do we, why do we remember the things we remember? Because we rehearse them in our brains. We keep bringing them to the forefront of our brains. Because if you don't think it's important, what did you eat last Wednesday night? Okay, most people can't remember what they ate yesterday or the day before because it's not that important to them. But, you know, why do we remember the things we remember? Because somewhere in our thinking, it's important enough for us to keep in the forefront of our brain. And this is why to forgive and forget is a choice. I choose not to remember what that person's done by not bringing up. Is it stuck in my brain somewhere? Absolutely. Is, is it the things that God chooses to forget in his knowledge bank somewhere? Absolutely. He knows everything. But he chooses not to remember. He chooses not to dredge them up and bring them to the, to the top. So we look at this and he says, I want what comes out of your body hidden. This will be, I'm going to spiritualize this one just a little bit. It is talking about all the sins that come out of our body. Okay? Because sin is outward primarily. Even if you think it's not, it's only mental. It, God still has an impact on how you behave and how you act. Somebody that has extreme lustful thoughts will look at people differently than they would if they didn't have those lustful thoughts. They may not act on it, but they will look at somebody with the wrong looks. They come out, and God is saying, hide them, because the Lord is wanting to be 
in the camp to deliver you from your enemies. God wants to deliver us from our enemies and our temptations, but if our sin is always before him, he's not going to help deliver us from the other evils that are coming our way because we're already entertaining evil and enemies. So we want to be careful. We confess our sins, we repent, we turn back to God, we hide in God, and we let him be our deliverer. And if we're living in sins, in a sinful lifestyle, number one, we're not going to be wanting to hide in God. Because when we get into God's presence, what happens when we get into God's presence? When, you, when you're having sin in your life, do you want to get into reading the Bible? Do you want to come to church? Do you want to be praying? Absolutely not. You do not want to be in the presence of a holy God when you're actively living in a sinful lifestyle. It's true all the time. You're living in, in sin. You do not want to be around God. And I've seen it over and over with people. You start, they start drifting away from God, and the next thing you know, you go find them, and it's, they're living in some sin, and they just don't want to be around God. God's spirit convicts. And so people will push away from God. <laughs> stay away from me, God. I don't want to have anything to do with you, so I'm going to stay away from your Bible. Worst decision you can possibly make, because the Bible is what will get you back with God. I'm going to stay away from the church because some of them might ask me about my sin and, and, and make me feel convicted. Just being in God's presence brings conviction. Have you ever been around a strong Christian who doesn't say a word, but you feel guilty just by being around them? Yes. Just, you know, they're, not, they're not even condemning you, but because they're bringing God's presence into the midst of that environment, you feel guilty like, oh, I... I'm just not living up to it. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be near this person. Well, it's not just that person. It's the church. It's the Bible. It's anything to do with God that can bring in that conviction. When you get to that point, you need to draw closer to God and that conviction and say, God, I am sorry. Help me get back. Psalm 51, David says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Because he had sinned with Bathsheba, with the adultery. He had murdered uh, Uriah, her husband, and he did not repent right away. David stayed away from God for over nine months because the child is born before he finally, and is killed before he finally starts coming back to God. So we know that it's at least nine months and probably closer to a year to a year and a half that David stays away from God because he's so convicted of his guilt and does not have the joy of his salvation. And our challenge for us is to keep the joy of our salvation. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Why? Because he tells me that he is with me. And when I know he's with me, there is great joy. There is great power. There is great excitement in your life. When you feel distant from God, you, you're, everything, is, everything is miserable because you know where you're supposed to be. I've heard several pastors in this last week say the same thing. Once you are saved and you know, under, and you've experienced God, there is no going back to the sin because you, you don't belong there. You know you don't belong there because you're God's child and the world knows you don't belong there so they don't accept you either. So when you're pulling away from God, you're in a no man's land where you're not happy at all because you know you're not supposed to be there and they know you don't belong there. And it's very amazing. Once we, once, we know, once we know that we are God's child and we're 
pulling away from him because of our sin or whatever, trying to go back into the world, we don't belong. And we know we don't belong because our spirit says we don't belong. The world also knows that we don't belong and they don't accept us. So we're, we're caught in between both worlds until we repent. So we're not talking about just doing wrong things. I'm talking about you get to the place where you're tired of walking with Christ. You don't feel comfortable. So you try to go back to the world. And you can't go back to the world because you don't belong there. And the spirit in you will tell you you don't belong there. So you're never happy. And this should be our attitude. When we sin as one of his children, we should be convicted and know that that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And we will be. If we're his child, we will be convicted if we try to live in sin. And if you've ever backslidden at all, you, you find yourself just at that place where you do the things that you used to think were made you happy and there's just nothing there anymore. If you, when, you're, when you come to a conviction, you, you repent. If you don't repent, you can live in the sorrow of condemnation and be where David was, no joy, no happiness, knowing that you belong someplace else and that you need the joy of the Lord and not but not willing to repent. God will do things with us that we cannot see how it can be good when we stand up and admit what we've done, to the, especially to a person that's harmed. They need to know, they need to get that opportunity to forgive. Now, may they, they might choose not to forgive and hold it against you, but that's between them and God as well. But God does miraculous things with you. And now, so many times we see the miraculous. Uh, in the cross and the switchblade, uh, David Wilkerson was preaching to the gangs members in, in New York City. And during a, during a revival session, they had all the gangs from different groups coming in. He chose the meanest guy and the one with the worst reputation to, to take up the offering. <laughs> his name was Nicky. And so Nicky takes up the offering. His people are glaring at everybody, you know, making them give a really big offering. And they get to the back door, and Nikki and his gang are ready to just walk out the back door, or the door with the offering. You know, they've got hundreds of dollars in their hands, and all of a sudden the spirit spoke to Nikki, and he basically understood nobody's ever trusted me, and he's now trusted me. And that broke his heart, and he ended up getting saved out of, out of the deal. We do things sometimes that make no sense in the flesh. And that can be the same thing when we confess our sins to somebody that we've harmed. It makes no sense. We're, we're scared to death they're not going to treat us right. They may or may not. There's no guarantee that they will, but God sometimes will bring a great things. Any, anything that comes down to this, when we do what God desires us to do, it doesn't always mean that good things are going to happen, but those things will touch people's hearts in ways that they don't understand. When we as Christians love the unlovable, that doesn't mean instantly they're going to respond, but they're going to be touched with this person's different because they're used to having people criticize them. They're used to having people not trust them. They're used to having people lie to them and, or tell them that, they, that they're, they're, they're cared for. Uh, when you deal with kids who are on a bus ministry that don't have parents that are Christians and you show them love they're going to test that love. They're going to say, Do, is, is this love more than my unsaved family loves me, that when I'm bad, they love me, I, I, are really mean and nasty to me. When, I, when I'm good, they, 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 they say they love me, and I, see, I feel it. But they're going to say, do you love me enough to like me even if I <laughs> misbehave? 
This is a real challenge for us. When we start ministering to people, that we're going to start seeing some of the worst parts of them because they're going to be saying, okay, you're saying that God loves me. You're saying that you love me the way God loves me. What are you going to do when I do these terrible things? Now, that doesn't mean we accept their terrible thing, but we, we say it's a sin, but we still love them. And we need to be showing God's love to them. Because think about how God deals with you when you sin. He's not standing there saying, okay, you're, you're, you're dead meat. I'm never going never gonna to trust you or allow you to do anything again until you've proven to me that you deserve my love. Well, if that was the way he treated us, we would never be able to show him that we deserve his love because we do not deserve his love. Even if we've walked with him for 50 years and we've improved our life greatly, we still do not deserve his love. And so we need to be learning to love people in that same manner. Can we do it the way God does? No. But we can learn to be kind, to love people in an unconditional love that says, I'm going to allow you. Does that mean we let them walk all over us? No, we don't keep saying, well, yeah, you can just keep doing these and walk all over me. But by the same token, we need to let them know that God still loves them and so do we. And that may mean that we trust them once in a while with small things to see if they're going to be, if they've grown. But it's very important that we represent Christ to them. We lift Christ up in front of them and they see what love looks like, at least a shadow of true love. Because the world doesn't understand love. All you got to do is listen to any music song that's not Christian and find out that the world does not know what love is. And even many, many Christian songs don't know what love is. They talk about love all the time. You know, the, the 50s and 60s music was all about that sugary sweet love. You know, you fell in love and you were in love forever because that, that emotion was going to stay there, you know. Uh, but the world does not understand love. And this is why they say, when we tell them that God is love, what they, what they hear in their mind is, oh, good, I can do whatever I want, and God's going to accept me. Well, no. God says, I love you, I choose to love you, but I have requirements for your life. It's the same thing that families are going through in this day and age. If I love my child, I can't put rules on them by, by the world's definition. That's not love. The kid runs out in the middle of the street and gets hit by a car. You're not loving your kid by not teaching them to not run into the street. You, you know, the world will look at it. If I'm disciplining my kid for running out, well, you don't really love your kid. Oh, yes, I love my kid completely. I want to see them the rest of my life. I don't want to see them dead in the, in, a, in the middle of the street. Or worse yet, maimed in the middle of the street. So love puts on restrictions on people and disciplines people. And that's what God's love is. But he still loves people, and he says, yes. He's the prodigal, the prodigal son's father who's waiting with arms open for the prodigal to return and says, I don't even care where you've been. I still love you. And there's a beautiful Christian song that was, I don't care where you've been sleeping. I don't care where you've been. I still love you is the, because he's speaking from God's point of view. God still loves us when we will turn back to him. Now, he'll keep people at a distance if they want to live in their sin, but he'll keep sending people to talk to them, keep sending messages to them, trying to draw them back. And, but once they decide to come back, he's right there with arms open saying, thank you, 
you're back. We go back, we go into the story of Hosea. Hosea was told to go marry a prostitute and buy her back several times to be, to be the picture of God loving Israel. I bought you, I, I married you, and you went into harlotry. I bought you back, you went back into harlotry, and it just shows God's continual love for his people. And it's the same way he treats us when we go away from him and he draws us back and buys us back and says, I'm still loving you, I still care for you. But God is looking for a righteous people. And that righteousness will be his doing as well. He draws us in, he crucifies the flesh, and he gives us righteousness to live by. So it's an amazing thing that it's all him. Verse 15. You shall not deliver unto his master the servant which is escaped from his master unto, the, unto you, he shall dwell with you, even among you, in that place which he shall choose in one, of his, in one of your gates, where it likes him best that he should not oppress him. So this talks about slavery and servants, and servants leaving their masters. And that last part of that verse 16 really talks about what it is. You shall not oppress him. So when somebody escapes who's being oppressed... They've, they've left their master for being beaten, basically. They've been beaten for no reason. This is an issue in America that we went through during the, before the slave market ended, when slaves would run away from their masters who were being abusive to them. It was required by, especially in the South, required by law that you return that slave back to its, his abusive master because he wasn't a human being. And in their mind, he was a thing that belonged to that person. And it's saying here, if, if somebody is that way, rather than sending them back, you're to take and protect them. You're to give them a certain amount of freedom. Because God was never been in the market of slavery. Because if we look at this, there's, he's telling people how to treat slaves if they are slaves. And he says that there were slaves, but he never said, you shall keep slaves. Same thing we look at when we look at polygamy. People will go, well, the, all through the Bible, they, they, these guys married multiple wives. And you go, you're right, that is. But God never said marry multiple wives. He said you will be married and you will be married for, for life. And every time we see multiple wives in the, in the Bible, we see problems established with it. And this is something we have to be careful when somebody says, well, this, it's in the Bible. Well, the Bible has a lot of things that are just a statement of this happened. <laughs> When we look at the scriptures and, we, and people will, and you'll hear it all the time, you witness to enough people, well, the Bible says about this. They go, yeah, well, the Bible tells us lots of things that are, that are just statement of facts. The, the idea, again, of, of polygamy. Many of these people were, had multiple wives. God never said it was a good idea. We look at the multiple wives that, that are out there. Lemek had, had two wives, and he was the first one where polygamy, and look, at it's not a good thing from what we read. Uh, Abraham ended up with, a, a, with Hagar as a wife and had nothing but trouble from it. Jacob had lots of trouble with four wives. and we, David had lots of trouble with all the wives he gathered up. Solomon has huge problems with all the wives and concubines he gathered. Verse 17, There shall no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor sodomite of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord your God, for any vow, for any, for even both these are abomination unto the Lord your God. So now he's bringing in a little more. He's getting into the sexual side of the sins. And he goes, there shall be no whore or prostitute amongst the daughters of, of Israel. 
They were not to go into prostitution. And then he goes, and there should be no sodomites of the sons of men, no, no homosexuals. And this has a deeper meaning as well as being a, prostit a male prostitute within the temples of the fertility. It literally means sodomy is homosexuality. And the newer versions are trying to soften that stance and try to say that that's not what God said when he used that word. But we look at this and say, God is saying you're going to be sexually pure. No prostitution, no homosexuality. He could have gone even deeper with this and said no adultery and fornication because all of those things are perversions and, and, and uh, abominations before God. All the sexual sins that can be com committed to God are an abomination. And this is something we have to keep in mind. God has forbidden all these different formats. He goes, the only thing that's allowed is a man and a woman. And any other way that you want to try to do it is a sin and crime. Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy of all, and Numbers have all covered that, and we've covered them over and over again. Everything from incest, fornication, and adultery are, are wrong. And that's even though they're male and female, they're wrong because they are not the one uh, wife principle. Also, through the scriptures, it's covered every other form of perversion. We are very close to the end times that people are doing what's right in their own eyes. And this is what we find when we start witnessing to people and they go, well, you can't judge me like that. They're, they want us to say whatever is right in your eyes is okay. God has standards. I'm not going to condemn them for their, for their behavior. I'm just going to say this is what God says about your behavior. You're, you're living together in that same house as husband and wife when you're not married is sin. Period. It's sin. I don't care whether... 80 or 90 percent of America says it's okay and the world says it's okay. God says it's a sin. Sexual but not doing anything? At that point you're walking into the apparent, you're working with the appearance, the appearance of sin. Very few people actually live plutonically in that relationship. I'm not going to say all of them don't, but very few people live with a totally plutonic relationship. There's usually at least one that wants it even if both don't? I grew up in a church that if you were going to be a pastor, you did not ride in the car alone with any woman that wasn't your wife. And if you were in the car, you sat in the back seat. The easiest way to have rumors started is to do anything that anybody can look at and think of its sin and start flapping their lips. There, the old joke where a pastor goes to, to pick up his laundry at the cleaner and the only place to park was in front of the bar and he parked his car and went across the street, got his laundry, but somebody saw his car parked in front of the bar and all of a sudden the rumor was that the pastor's in the bar drinking. And that, by the time it got back to him, of course, he's, he was roaring drunk, falling down, you know, not only just... But this is a very critical thing. Paul tells us to don't use our liberty for a, that would harm somebody. Who, and the whole purpose is, does it appear to be wrong to them? And he was talking about Christians who could go out to the butcher shop at the bottom of the temple and buy meat offered to the idol because they knew that it was just a piece of stone that they'd killed the meat in front of and they didn't get bothered. But somebody who had come out of idolatry worship said, how could you be eating this meat that 
had been offered to the idol because they're still struggling with the idea that the idol wasn't a god. Now, there was no problem with it. It wasn't a problem. We need to be careful on our side not to tempt people into judging us. Now, it's a problem, of course, on their side. The, the guys who are looking and judging you, it's a problem on their side, too. They shouldn't be doing it either. But Paul said, if it's going to make them sin, don't do it. Don't even bring that appearance in. Do you, does that mean sometimes you can go to the extreme? I would rather go to the extreme and not do it than to have somebody fall because of something that I had the, the freedom to do. Or not get saved at all because of it. So, yes, it can be taken maybe too far, but by the same token, many lives have been destroyed by the, by the rumors that go around because of an appearance. This is why it is probably better not to do things like that. It's better for a Christian not to drink out in public, even though God has no verse that says, thou shalt not drink, because you have a weak brother who says, well, if that older Christian can do it, then there must not be any problem, and they end up getting drunk. Uh, living together in a home with a man and a woman in a plutonic relationship and there's nothing going on but everybody looking at it's going to say what's going on behind those walls but then only God knows only God knows but by the same token it's still bringing a temptation for others to judge you that's probably not worth it mm -hmm. and especially in our day and age where living together is is not considered that bad and we see it happening more and more, and we need to be very careful, but God says certain things we need to be looking at. Are we looking to match God? Or am I listen, looking to justify what I'm doing by some, some reason? And this is something that is between each individual. I'm not going to sit there and judge people for it. I'm just going to say, this is what God says. If it bothers them, then that's between them and God, and I'm still going to try to deal with them as best I can and work with that. You shall not lend usury to your brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger you may lend upon usury, but unto your brother you shall not lend upon usury, for that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you set your hand to do in the land whither you go to possess it. And if you don't know what usury is, that's interest. Mine says interest. Yes, it's just it means interest. Usually it has the connotation of high exorbitant in interest, but it really is any interest at all. And so the Jews were told that if you loaned to another Jew, you weren't allowed to loan it with interest. You, you could loan them the money and expect it back, but you were not to charge them interest. And as he said, it, whether it be food or any other thing that you lent, you couldn't ask for more back than you lent them because they were your brother. You are to be kind to them. You are to be generous with them. And it says, but upon a stranger, you could charge interest. This is a principle that God's saying, if you're going to lend to a fellow brother or sister, you're to be looking to help them, not, not gouge them. Because if somebody needs to borrow money, they're already in trouble in the first place. My habit has always been, if I'm going to give somebody money it is literally that i'm going to give them I, I don't even when somebody says can i borrow i'm going to end up just giving it to them if i can afford it because i don't want the bad feelings of you didn't pay me back and i don't put the strings on it it's like if you want to pay it back fine i'm but in my mind that money's gone if i get it back fantastic if i don't i didn't expect it back 
This is the type of thing God's saying here. You're, you're going in to help somebody. You're not looking to get rich off what you can get from them. And this is, as the body of Christ, we're to help one another. We're to, to be able to sit down and help one another and, and be generous and, and try to do the best we can. Can we always help somebody? No, but when we can, we're to be generous, and God will always reward that. He is very gracious in to return back to us what we give. And that's been my experience over and over again. When, I can, when I've been able to afford it, I've given. When I've needed it, God's given to me. And being able to give to the offerings, give to, the, give to people who need help, help with the food in the food bank, you know, all these different things that we can do to help our brothers and sisters. Does that mean we can help everybody? Absolutely, none of us are that rich. At least none that I know. If you have that much secret, if you have that much secret money, that's great. To a degree, sometimes it's better to not give them money is more help than to give them money. And this is something that we have to keep in mind. Because if you're enabling people's bad habits by giving them money, you're not helping them. You're just making the situation worse because they're looking for handouts all the time. And our generation is that way. You know, we have people with their hands out all the time, give me, give me, give me, give me, and they're not willing to go out and do anything for themselves because they just know somebody's going to help them. We see it all the time with all the panhandlers all over the place. You know, and it, we need to be able to say, God is saying, help one another generously. In the first, in the first century church, when Jerusalem was having a hard time, they came together and they, they were living together. They... they, they uh, pooled together their resources. And a lot of people looked at, see, the, the first church was a socialist church. They, they brought, no, they brought everything together because they had to. Because just as today, when they became a Christian, their families disowned them. People wouldn't go to their shops and buy their goods. They were, they were destitute when they, and for the most part, when they became a Christian. So they would all come together and say, well, I can help you with this, and you can help me with that. And they bartered, and they traded with each other. They joined their, their goods together and said, we're just going to help one another. It wasn't anything about being socialist. It was just being, that's what they had to do to survive. God is saying, we're to reach out to one another, and we're to help one another. And the reason the church does it amongst themselves is because we know each other. We know who has a real need and who is just trying to play games. If somebody's always got their hand out, then they're not, they're probably not all that needy. They're just being either lazy or taking advantage of everybody. If you have people who are generous and being helping out and very rarely taking and they need something, then you go, those are the kind of people we all have no problem with anyway. Well, this person for years has never had their hand out. We're going to, but now that something's happening, we need to help them. But here it's saying, help your family members and don't be trying to get back usury. Don't be doing it to get interest. Verse 21. When you shall vow a vow unto the Lord your God, you shall not slack to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be a sin in you. And if you shall forbear to vow, it shall be no sin to you. That which is gone out of your lips you shall keep and perform, even a free will offering according as you have vowed unto the Lord, which you have promised with your mouth. This is God saying you're going to be honest, basically. If you make a vow before God, he expects it to be kept. And he says it's better for you not to make a vow than to 
make a vow and not keep it. And this is something that is very important. That which has gone out of your lips, you shall keep and perform it. That is not very true in our day and age. People say things all the time. And then you'll hear, well, circumstances came up. I couldn't, you know, I was planning to be there, but. Okay, it wasn't so long ago that if you said something, you did it unless you were in the hospital or something. I mean, the only excuse was that you were so sick, you couldn't get out of your, be your bed to uh, perform the duty. You performed it even to your own hurt. And this is something that we don't have in our day and age a lot of, where people will make a promise. Oh, yeah, I'll be, so, I'll be at such and such place. And then they'll go, well, you know, well, something came up. I had an opportunity to, to go work and make money. And this is where that statement of work unto your own hurt. And God expects it to be paid. God yeah. expects any vow to him. But I would go a little further than that, that any vow you make to other people is still a vow before God because he hears it. And he expects us to be honest in our vows and our, and our promises. About the only thing, if I've told somebody I'm going to do something. Well, I do that. I was thinking, you know, if you're not at work, you better be dying. You know, I have that kind of attitude. You tell somebody you're going to do something to them, and you just, you know, there's something that comes up to you. You cannot, you cannot, because something happened in your life or something that happened. You, know, you lost a job. But I think you hit it, though, in the very first statement. Okay. If I would go to work, why would I do any less on my word? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. What circumstance would keep me out of work? Because I have that same attitude. I'm going to be at work unless I'm on my deathbed. Why would my st keeping of my word be any lower standard than that? Okay. I'm going to be, if I tell you I'm going to be someplace to help you, I'm going to be there to help you unless I'm in the hospital or on my deathbed, basically. If I have to find another way to get there, I'm going to find another way to get there, just as I would for work. If I gave my word, I'm going to help them. My word is at a very high priority that I'm going to keep my word even to my own hurt. Now, you will also find that I don't give my word that easily. Usually I will say, I will try to do this, if at all possible, I will try to do this. But if I tell you, yes, I will be there to help you, people were amazed that I went to see Loretta this weekend with as busy as I was. I said I was going to do it, and we went. Just plain and simple. I would have gone no matter what. Once I said I was going to go see her, it was a commitment that I had made to go see her. The example that was given here in, in, this, in this verse is verse 23. That which has gone out of your lips, you shall keep and perform even a free will offering. Now, you've got to first go back and remember what a free will offering is. That was a gift that I gave because I wanted to give that. But if I told God, I'm going to give you a free will offering, God, now I have made it a vow and it is a requirement that I fulfill that vow. And Judges comes back from, that, from the victory that he had and he goes to, as he's coming up to his home, he says, God, I'm going to offer you the first thing that comes out of the door of my house as an oh, offering. Yeah. And it turns out to be his daughter, daughter the first yeah. thing. You know, he was expecting a pig or a sheep to come running out of the house because the animals lived in the houses, if you, especially the first floor. And it ended up being his daughter, and, he, and she ended up being given to the Lord, not as a burnt offering, but she went in to be service to God for the rest of her, of her life. Okay, he made a vow. He had to keep the vow. And this is what God is saying here. Even if it's a free will offering that is normally 
of your own free will, if you say you're going to do it, God expects that free will offering to be given. You can't back down from it and once you said, I'm going to do this. And this is what it is. According to you have vowed, you will, will work out of the promise of your mouth. Because this goes in the same thing of when you, when you stand and make vows for marriage in front of, in front of God and the, and the, and the pastor. You're, you're promising to stay together for life and yet most people just abandon those after a few years. It's like, well, there's no big deal. And God says, no, you made a vow. You're supposed to keep it. The only way he says you can get out of that is through the act of adultery. And that is not what most divorces are based on in these days. Most of them are just, well, we don't get along. Well, of course you don't get along. Neither of you are trying to get along. All right, the last, last two verses. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes to your fill at your own pleasure, but you shall not put any in, in your vessel. And when you come into the standing corn of your neighbor, you shall pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not move a sickle into your neighbor's standing corn. So here he's saying, if you're visiting your neighbor and you're in the middle of the field, you can eat stuff standing in his field. All right, you can pick the apple off the orchard, orchard tree and eat the apple. You can pluck an ear of corn and you can, can eat the ear of corn or you can pick a, hand, you know, a, a, a bunch of grapes and eat them while you're there. But you cannot go to his field and, and fill a basket of stuff and leave without his permission. I mean, it's, again, it's to care for your neighbors. You've got stuff. You're talking. They're in your fields. They can, they can eat. And this is God saying they can satisfy their appetite, but they can't go fill their larders at home with the stuff from your field. While they're standing there, they can eat. They can enjoy. They can enjoy. And, you know, we used to have that mentality even in America. You could go into the field, you'd fasten through the field, and grab one apple or one pear and eat it while you're walking. But, you know, if you went in, if you went in with a big bucket or a bushel, you weren't to fill the whole bushel or bucket up and leave the field because that, that was considered out-and-out out theft. It has to do with primarily possessions belong to the people who own the possessions. And being generous, you can, if you were really hungry, you could go satisfy yourself you know, at, at their field, but you weren't to get greedy and, and, and say, well, you know, these grapes are really good and I, and I feel really satisfied, now I'm going to take a bushel of them home with me. That would be out-and-out out theft. He goes, that's going too far. But again, the whole pattern here was, are you willing to keep your word? Are you helping your brothers and your sisters? To say, well, no, you can't, have, you can't even have an apple out of my orchard if you're hungry is too much the other direction. But he's saying, as you're going through that orchard, you can grab one apple and eat it. You may even grab two apples. If, you know. And he says, to your fill. If you're standing there at the apple tree stuffing yourself with a bushel of apples that you're eating the whole thing, I don't know who'd eat a whole bushel of apples. He says, it's okay as long as you're standing there. You were that hungry. You were that in need. It's okay while you're there, but you can't take the bushel home with you and eat it over the next week or two or three or four. But he's saying all of this comes down to you're to care for one another. You're to love one another enough. This is one of the reasons why we have the food bank. We want to help people. And we're not going to sit there and say, well, now hold it. You've taken a can. Every time you come into church, you take four or five cans. And <laughs> if somebody's that hungry, that's between them and God. Now, I'd like to know that they took it so I know that things are gone, but it's still between them and God. And we want to say, 
it's there to help. We want to minister. Now, if somebody's coming in and they have no need for it in taking it, that's another story altogether, but that's still between them and God. I'm not going to sit there and go, well, how full are your, how full are your cabinets at home that you're taking, <laughs> taking, taking food from here? This verse is saying we're to help one another. We're to be able to be generous with people. We're to love them. We're to help them with a, a loan without interest. And like I say, I always turn it into a gift myself. I just don't think it's worth having the harbor of the bad feelings if you don't get the money back. If I can afford to let somebody borrow it, I can afford to let them keep it if that's the case. But this is also why God tells us that we are a slave to the lender. If we borrow money, we are a slave to the lender because we have to pay them back. And it's what's right, which is why he says, don't borrow. Because the question is, where is our trust? Who am I trusting to meet my needs? Am I trusting... My, my work, most of us are, and we, we should in one sense. If we go to work, we, we should expect to get our pay, but are we expecting that to go long term? When we buy a house or a car, that's really what we're doing. We're saying, well, I'm going to have this job for 30 years or 15 years if you have a house, uh, you know, seven to nine years nowadays for cars. I mean, it's getting ridiculous how long, long they will finance a car for. But you're saying, okay, I'm going to keep my job that long, how many people put their trust in something other than God? Most Americans have a piece of plastic in their wallet that they put their trust in. Well, I can't afford to pay for this. I'll just put it on this card. God, I don't trust you to give me the money. Just put it on the card. <laughs> Somehow I'll come up with the money to pay this card in, in 30, 40 years and I, when I'm still paying for the same card. Where is our trust? Am I saying, God, you're the one I trust in, or am I saying, God, I'm going to trust in everything but you? And this is something that's very important for us to understand. If you need it, God's going to provide for it, period. And the greatest example I have is when I went for three and a half years with this job being my only job and Lynn's job, not making a whole lot of money, and God, and living on a budget that was a lot higher than what we were making when I lost my other job. And God provided. Every single month, God provided. Was it nerve-wracking at times? Absolutely. God likes to wait till the last possible minute. Uh, God, the, the electric bill's uh, due tomorrow. Well, I don't have the money for it. You know, and, and usually sometime on that tomorrow, God provided the money. Very rarely did he give them me the money ahead of time to pay, pay the bill, bill. But that's the way God says, are you going to trust him? Are you going to trust me to meet your needs? Now, sometimes that would mean, that, like I said before, that he would give me a job to do. And I'd have to go out and work for a couple hours to make the money for the, for the bill the next day. Sometimes it was a gift. It was a miraculous to watch the way God does things. And one of the things that's really got me concerned right now is, now that we're making a pretty decent income, I need to still stay focused on God being trusting in God. And you know it's a little harder to trust in God when everything looks like it's going fine and you, and you go, well, God, I've got all the money I need or uh, I, can, I can do this on my own, God. I don't need you as much. It is so easy to get into that attitude and we need to be very careful, always. There's both sides of the coins. When you have nothing, it's, it's like, okay, God, how am I going to do this and, and watching God work. But it's a greater temptation when you have much. 
okay, God, I can, I can celebrate. I can do things. And God doesn't mind us doing a little bit with our money as long as we keep honoring him. And we keep giving him our tithes and our offerings. We keep being generous with other people. We keep trying to help other people out. And it's very important that we do this process with God and we stay focused on him with much or with little. And I'm going to tell you, it's easier to get lost with much than it is with little. When you've got little, it's, you're focused on God for everything. And very easy to stay focused on God. But when you have much, it's kind of easy to forget that you need God still and you need to honor God. And so it's kind of amazing as we watch all this process. And, you know, the greatest thing is to give to God. To give to God and see what he's going to do in return. And... You know, it's, it's fun also when you, you give your 10%. When you have little, that, that little check doesn't look like anything, but when you start getting much, that tithe check looks pretty big sometimes, especially if you get much, much. <laughs> and I've been on the much, much side in the past of, you know, in my life and where my, my checks were, my tithe checks were pretty good <laughs> tithe checks. But we need to keep in mind Honor God with much or with little, but honor him. And keep remembering always that it's him. He's the provider of the blessings. And we give to God and we, we, we give generously to God. In Corinthians, Paul said that God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver. You know, and he's looking for us. You know, most of us are trying to figure out, you know, God, what, how much do I give you? Okay, God, you, give, you say give you the 10%. What's most people's question right after they've decided to give the tithe? Well, they do that on the net or the gross. That's between you and God. God is not an accountant going to sit there and beat you up. But how generous do you want to be? How generous do you want to be? Because Jesus, when he was talking about this, remember he said, if you have a lustful thought, you've committed adultery. If you're angry with your brother, you've committed sin, you know, of committed murder. What do you think he would say about God? Do, how much money should I give? I told you 10% in the Old Testament, but how much more are you going to give? How much more are you looking to give? Or are you looking to just look like you're giving to me? This is very important for us. God is always looking at us to go the more, the, to the extreme. Most Christians are out there trying to go, God, how close to this sin can I come before I fall over the edge? <laughs> The wrong question is being asked in that case. The question is, I want to stay away from this sin as far as I possibly can so that I don't accidentally trip and fall over the edge. I want to be miles away from it so that I don't accidentally cross over. And this is the right attitude as a Christian. God, how truthful should I be? How close to, the, how close to a lie can I come before I've broken the truth and no longer lie, and no longer told the truth and I've lied? We need to have the other side. How honest can I be to stay honest? How much love can I show so that I'm not going to be bitter towards somebody? How much forgiveness can I show? Not, okay, God, uh, just how forgiving do I have to be before I become unforgiving? Or how, how much you know, can I judge this person before I've crossed over to, to complete you know, judgment? We need to look and say, God, I want to be, I don't want to be so close to the line that I have to always be worried about crossing the line. I want to be as far from the line as possible where I'm not being tempted. You know, what shows can I watch so that I'm not, not crossing the line of lust and, lust and everything? Well, 
you know, watch the, <laughs> the back of your eyelids, okay? <laughs> she said the back of your eyelids. <laughs> don't, watch, don't watch them at all. <laughs> but that is true. You know, what do we put before our eyes? What are we putting in our minds? Are we being careful about what we put in there to keep us away from lust and desires and those things? Because it's getting harder and harder to watch anything on TV or read any book on, out there without having it cross the line. Even if the show is good, the commercials aren't good in, these, in our day. So we need to keep in mind, what is the standard we have before God? As far away from the sin as possible, not how close can I come to the, come to the line and, and not cross it. If you're starting to ask yourself that, start, start talking to God about refocusing your question. It's not how close can I come, but how far should I stay away from it? How far from the edge should I stand away from this so that I don't cross it? The people who, who will flirt with, other, with the other people when they're married, you know, well, I'm just having fun flirting. Well, somebody's going to take you up on your flirting one day, and you're, you're, you're going to be a little embarrassed because you're either going to commit the act or you're going to be very embarrassed that you encouraged it with your flirting. You know, this is something that we got to be careful of. Are we encouraging bad behavior by our actions? Or are we staying as far away from it as possible? And this is something that is very critical. When we speak, are we watching what we say or do we cross lines a lot, you know, push the lines on this, that, that with things, saying things we probably shouldn't be saying because we're very close to crossing over into a lie or into to a place where we don't want to be. Very critical. Our standard needs to be high and separate and from the world and that we're standing and representing God because when we cross lines we're bringing shame to the name of Christ because people are looking at us and saying well you're no different than I am yeah. now we know we're gonna fail you know don't get me wrong when I say that you know we know we're going to fail but we should be failing because not because we were dancing on the line but that we somehow really hit a pit someplace and ended up failing not because I was playing and dancing and, and tempting fate. You know, because if you tempt fate long enough, fate's going to win. You go play chicken in the road long enough, a car's going to hit you eventually. You, know, you don't do it, and we know that. You know, and that makes sense to us, and yet we do that with sin all the time. Let me go walk in the middle of the road and jump in front of the, in front of the temptation and jump back and jump back across the line and jump back before I get caught, and eventually you get caught and you fall. Then you kind of wonder, how did I ever do this? And it's bad enough when you just find your, you know, you're walking righteously and all of a sudden find yourself across that line somehow. But when you're sitting there playing with it, it's a dangerous place to be. And God says, stay away from it. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much we, you love us and care for us. We ask that you help give us the strength to walk in a righteous, holy lifestyle that only can be done through you. Help us to be examples that lift you up in front of all people at all times. And Lord, if there's anybody listening to this that doesn't know you, that you convict them of their sin and that they will accept your gift of salvation and believe that you died for their sins and come to you and seek a church in your son's name. Amen.